This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. It was the summer of 1973. Doug Collins took a drive up to Kutcher's Resort in the Catskills. He was going to play in an exhibition game with a bunch of other pros, including Wilt Chamberlain. Collins was curious about the competition, but he had just been picked number one by the Philadelphia 76ers in the NBA draft. So he felt pretty assured about his basketball future. Until he saw Julius Irving. And I'll never forget Julius walking out on the court. It was dark. He came walking out. He had those knee sleeves on and he was palming two basketballs. And he walked out and he dunked one with his right hand and one with his left hand. And I go, I'm playing a different sport here. Collins wasn't the only one awestruck by Irving. His unique ability to play above the rim with a grace and artistry that seemed to defy gravity was so captivating, it practically forced the merger between the ABA and the NBA and got Madison Avenue to change its ways and embrace a black basketball star. But rather than merely enjoying the spoils, Dr. J became a willing ambassador passing on the icon blueprint to those who followed in his footsteps. I'm Jackie McMullen. From Spotify and The Ringer, this is The Icons Club, the evolution of the NBA superstar. Episode 2, Dr. J. Let's start with the nickname, shall we? We can trace it all the way back to Roosevelt High School in New York. Julius had a friend named Leon Saunders, a teammate who was such a stickler for the rules that Julius started referring to him as the professor. Saunders retorted by calling Julius the doctor, perhaps because of the surgical way he carved up opposing defenses. The nickname stuck. In later years, when Irving was putting on a show at the famed Rucker Park in Harlem, others tried to pin new monikers on him. Little Hawk, because his style resembled the great Connie Hawkins, or The Claw, or Black Moses. Julius waved them all off, 
Call me the doctor, he insisted. His signature move, a spectacular high-flying foul line dunk, was not the result of painstaking practice. In fact, Dr. J tells me, it sort of happened by accident in high school. The first soaring in from the foul line dunk was actually like my junior year of high school. But I stepped inside the line and I went in and I had my palm face backwards to the basket. And I went in to, you know, do the dipper shot, Will Chamberlain shot. That was Wilt's signature move. Basically a dunk, but ending with a soft lay-in instead of a slam. And as I got closer and closer, for some miraculous reason, I turned my hand open and I ended up dunking the ball. And people just went crazy. And I was, I was a junior and I was coming off the bench. And next game I started. <laughs> <laughs> Next game, I started, and I always started after that. <laughs> Once Dr. J started dunking, it became a bit of an obsession. Very few others could execute it, and fewer still with the flair of Irving. But then, in 1967, the rules changed. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who back then was Lou Alcindor, starred for UCLA and destroyed opponents by slamming the ball through the net. It was, Kareem would later declare, a racially-based decision designed to negate the athletic advantage of black players. The predominantly white members of the NCAA denied that's why they banned the dunk, claiming it wasn't a skillful shot and citing injuries to players attempting it. Yet the new decree became known as the Lou Cinder Rule. Julius, who delighted his high school crowd in pregame warm-ups with his creative dunks, was informed that every time he performed one, even in the layup line, it would result in a technical foul. Dr. J, not yet 18 years old, initiated his own protest by doing it anyway. So you'd be giving the team a point or two points, you know, it depends on how many dunks you did. The refs would, you know, they watch, they watch the warm-ups. That's a racial thing, don't you think? Absolutely. I think it, you know, it definitely uh, was harboring the skills and jumping abilities of black players or whatever, or, or style, you know, just, just style differences. And, and it, it was aimed at UCLA and the dominant force, you know, the immovable object. It was, it was him. And they made him a better player. Well, that's true. That's Sky Hook, right? It's not that he dunked all the time. But by them neutralizing and taking it out, he just worked on other skills and the skyhook, you know, that is unparalleled by anybody. Guys try it. They shoot hook shots. But the skyhook is his. It was not the first time, Irving says, where old school traditionalists tried to squash the flair and creativity of black basketball players. He pointed to the famed Harlem Globetrotters who traversed the country displaying incredible talents and inspiring young kids to mimic their bombastic moves. Most times, Dr. J explains, the kids' coaches would quell any thoughts of using them in a game. It has uh, showmanship uh, written all over it. And seen it before, you know, it was something that kids in my neighborhood, if we came out dribbled between our legs behind the back, whatever coach would say, I don't want you to do that here. You know, take that to the playground. 
There was no better venue to let loose than Rucker Park. Some of the greatest basketball players of all time have graced that blacktop. Wilt, Kareem, Nate Tiny Archibald, Kevin Durant, along with countless Rucker streetball legends. So when Dr. J got to college and wanted to ramp up his style, he took his talents to Harlem. And certainly there was no coach who can, you know, teach me how to be freaky deaky on the court, <laughs> you know, and, and switch hands in air and, and do that stuff. So that came, that came a little later, you know, mostly at the Rucker League and the playground and, you know, when a 48-minute game would be 90 minutes because the guy would stop the clock and just let everybody play. <laughs> By the time Irvin was a junior at the University of Massachusetts, word of his prowess had caught the attention of Bill Russell, who visited him on campus and talked with him for three hours about everything from academics to racial bias to business pursuits. It was Julius's first connection to a fellow icon, and it left an indelible impression. When Russell departed, he gave Dr. J his number and told him, if you ever need anything, it was an exclusive gilded invitation into the icons club. You know, he had given me contact information on him and uh, stayed in touch. You know, I stayed in touch and he was a broadcaster, right, with uh, Rick Barry for our games. Uh, when I was in the NBA. And when he came to Philly, he actually stayed with me. He didn't stay in the hotel. He actually stayed with me. Irving turned pro in 1971, but the NBA was off limits to him because he had not completed four years of college. Those were the rules back then. No degree, no NBA. The ABA welcomed him on the merits of what was called the hardship rule, which allowed players to go pro if they had financial difficulties. That road was paved by Spencer Haywood, who hailed from Silver City, Mississippi, one of 11 children who grew up picking cotton from sunup to sundown. Basketball was his ticket out, and after a year at the University of Detroit, marketing whiz Mike Storen convinced Haywood to join the ABA's Denver Rockets as the league's first hardship case. Storen's pitch was pretty straightforward. Here's what he told Spencer. So... You think you want to play basketball for us, and we can uh, we can move with the resolution from the all of the ABA owners that we will let the first case come in as a hardship case because you are certainly a hardship because your mother is still picking cotton in Mississippi at for two dollars a day, and your whole family is there. So this would be a good case, and if you can get five points, maybe three rebounds, I think we got a good deal here. Five points and three rebounds. <laughs> <laughs> so that year, I averaged 30 points and 20 rebounds. <laughs> Haywood's success opened the door for Julius to leave UMass and sign directly with the ABA's Virginia Squires under the hardship rule in 1971. The ABA, formed in 1967, was a dissident league. With its trademark red, white, and blue ball and its controversial three-point shot, the ABA was viewed as a bastion for freedom of expression by restless stars and as a pitiful gimmick by NBA diehards. Leaders in the American Basketball Association, the Squires are the pride of Virginia sports fans from the Blue Ridge to the Atlantic, captivated by a brand of basketball that borders on magic. 
Finances were a constant worry as small crowds and a dearth of television revenues hampered the ABA's ability to grow. So the league instituted some unorthodox tactics to draw people to the games. The Indiana Pacers promoted cow milking and bear wrestling at halftime. The Kentucky Colonels brought in Playboy bunnies to play basketball against local TV, radio, and newspaper personalities. The Denver Rockets held a halter top night. There was a bruiser named John Brisker who played for the Pittsburgh Condors and got into a scuffle with multiple Utah Stars players one night in his own gym. The next time he traveled to Utah, they dubbed it John Brisker Intimidation Night and lined the court with local area champion boxers. Julius was a welcome addition. Pat Williams, the executive who would later orchestrate Dr. J's arrival in Philly, speaks to the mystique surrounding Irving in the infancy of his career. Nobody really knew this guy until uh, he made his first appearance uh, with the Virginia Squires. And uh, they did not have national coverage. So a lot of, of this Dr. J thing was word of mouth. This young guy, we've never heard of him, but boy, he, they, they say he's really good. And, and he was. Dr. J launched himself from the foul line and soared towards the rim as if suspended in the air by invisible wires. But hardly anyone witnessed it. There was no social media in the 70s, no cell phones at the ready to record every moment. Pro basketball was desperately grasping for media attention, lurking in the long shadow of the more popular college game. What little coverage the pros did get went to the more established NBA, leaving the ABA, where Julius was turning heads, with minuscule PR crumbs. So Irving, with his long, spindly legs and his spectacular afro, became an urban legend. Wilt had his trademark dipper shot, and Russell was the artful shot blocker. But wait, Dr. J could fly. And that sends everyone reeling. Julius Irving. News of his surreal athletic feat spread the old-fashioned way, in barbershops, on playgrounds, and in pro basketball boardrooms. When his coming out party finally did occur, he obliterated the old notion of how basketball stars performed. At the time, with the exception of Chamberlain and Russell, the game was rarely played above the rim in professional arenas, with offenses designed to feature stout, physical, largely immobile big men dominating in the paint. But once Dr. J took flight, he revolutionized how the game was played and also how it was perceived. We, you know, started thinking of the NBA as the brown ball league and, you know, slow, tedious, methodical, obviously less entertaining than the red, white, and blue. <laughs> you know, the American Basketball Association. We're the real Americans, you know. <laughs> America wants us. <laughs> and a lot of it was just psyching ourselves because uh, we didn't have the contracts that they had over there. We didn't have the national uh, television broadcasts consistently the same way. The ABA often felt like it was hanging on by a thread, but it did have star power. Rick Barry, George Iceman Gervin, Artis Gilmore, George McGinnis, and Spencer Haywood. None of them elicited the response that Dr. J did, says Haywood. 
especially after he brought down the house with this high-flying slam in the 1976 All-Star Game. Dudes came in and exploded the whole contest, the whole ABA and the movement. We were sort of like renegades, you know? We didn't, we didn't stay the four years in college. We didn't do all of the stuff, and so, we had our mullets and, you know, the, the white players had their hair down to their back and and mustaches, handlebar mustache, Julius and Darnell Hillman. They had the pros, gigantic pros. Barry said the ABA's fast-paced style was one of its biggest selling points. In the early years of the NBA, there was also plenty of scoring. But Barry contends that once coaches started drawing big contracts, that changed. I mean, it was high tempo stuff until until all of a sudden all the money that they started paying the coaches, the coaches, you know, wanted to win games to do. And if they didn't have great natural talent and athletes on their team, they slowed the ball down. And then you remember during at NBA during those times when they were really worried because the scoring was still low. I mean, it was games in the 70s, for God's sake. It was it was pathetic. The NBA needed a jolt of energy and athleticism. But players with those characteristics chose the ABA, where they could play freely, albeit without much exposure. Thus, Dr. J had to bide his time for his crack at the spotlight. Consider the contrast 30 years later of a young LeBron James, who landed on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 2002 as a high school player under the blaring headline, The Chosen One. By the time LeBron turned pro, we had already viewed countless grainy highlights because many of his high school games were televised. We knew who James was. We knew what he looked like. We even knew his mother's name. Not so with the ABA stars. They toiled for their franchises knowing at any moment they could be shuttered because the bills could not be paid. Player contracts that were seemingly lucrative proved to be something else entirely upon reading the fine print. Consider Hayward's contract that was supposed to pay him nearly $2 million over five years. But upon further review, it required him to work for a trucking line from age 50 to 70 to collect the money. It was that indignity that prompted him to sign with the Seattle Supersonics and file a landmark antitrust suit against the NBA. That would ultimately result in allowing underclassmen to play. It was precisely the break Irving needed for the NBA to open its doors to him. But the merger of the ABA and the NBA? The doctor managed that one all on his own. Remember, this is 1976. Before Magic, before Bird. Those guys were still in high school. Meanwhile, Dr. J had just led his Nets team to a championship and was the most coveted player in the ABA. In fact, claims former NBA player ML Carr, he might have been the only reason the NBA agreed to absorb four of the ABA's franchises. I want to be real, really, really out front about this. Magic and Larry didn't get a chance to do that without Dr. J. Dr. J threaded the two leagues together. The NBA didn't want the ABA to merge with them. They wanted Dr. J. We all knew that. Julius gave the league an opportunity because he was a first really marketable guy that was had splash and everything that he was bringing from the ABA. The Nets, San Antonio, Indiana, and Denver 
were required to pay a $3.2 million entrance fee into the NBA. The Nets were saddled with an additional $4.8 million because they were infringing on the territory of the New York Knicks. On top of that, Dr. J claimed the Nets had agreed to give him a new deal upon the merger. Nets owner Roy Bowe did the math and realized he didn't have the cash. He told Irvin there would be no new contract. As a result, Dr. J became one of the first holdouts in pro basketball history. It was a courageous but risky decision that would have been heresy back in the days of Wilt and Russell when players had few rights, no free agency options, and certainly not enough clout to refuse to show up to work. But the league was evolving, and Irving was at the center of it. Bo offered to give Irving to the Knicks if they would waive the $4.8 million fee. They refused. Unaware of Dr. J's exceptional basketball portfolio, they figured the cash was more valuable than the player. They were sadly mistaken. Meanwhile, Pat Williams, the young GM of the Sixers, wanted in on the doctor. So he called Bo. I talked to him about it. Would you ever move him? No, 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 no. I said, well, if anything changes, let me know. A few weeks later, Williams got the call. He was told the asking price for Dr. J was $3 million. Now, Jackie, in 1976, that was like asking for $8 million, $3 million. I said, well, what about signing him? He said, well, that's going to take another three for five years. So if I math, my math was right, that was $6 million. At the time, the Sixers had a new owner, F. Eugene Dixon, who didn't really follow basketball that closely. Williams told him Dr. J was available. And he said, tell me, Pat, who, who is Julius Irving? I said, well, Vince, he's the Babe Ruth of basketball. I said, let me describe him that way. And he said, well, what's it going to take to get him? And it's a little tough, Jackie, to go to your new owner and, and mumble something about $6 million. Uh, but I somehow got it out. And, and then Fitz looked at me and he said, Pat, and I hardly knew this man. He said, are you recommending this deal? And I said, yes, sir, I am. And he said, well, then go get it done. That was the end of the meeting. It was also the start of a new era. Dr. J joined the Sixers, and the NBA would never be the same. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Julius Irving arrived in the NBA as the league's $6 million man. But if he felt any pressure regarding that, it was undetectable. Dr. J simply picked up from where he left off in the ABA. 
dazzling curious Sixers fans, improvising mid-flight, performing 360 spins, whirling layups, and of course, his magnificent dunks. Los Angeles, of course, the Knicks finally won it. Reed missed game six, just as Kareem is here, the doctor. Julius. He was a basketball wizard, and it quickly became apparent the Sixers' transaction was one of the most brilliant in league history. Philadelphia advanced to the finals in his first season, and although the Sixers lost to a Portland Trailblazers team led by big man Bill Walton, Dr. J's impact on the league was immediate. In his first season, 1977, he won MVP of the All-Star Game. And in 81, Dr. J won league MVP honors, the first non-center in 17 seasons to do so. Walton says he was, like everyone, hypnotized by the doctor. While Kareem was the greatest player I ever played against, uh, Larry was the greatest player I ever played with, but Dr. J was the single most vibrant and exhilarating and exciting player that I ever saw up close firsthand. I mean, he he had the physical gifts, uh, but he had the personality and he had the stature and he, he had the, the calmness and uh, that majestic level of I'm Dr. J and nobody else is, and, and I'm coming through here to throw it down. The foul line dunk became Dr. J's signature statement, but he also wowed fans with his rock-a-baby slam and his reverse layups behind the backboard. He unveiled his most memorable version against the Lakers in the 1980 finals, when, starting at the right baseline, he left his feet, detected Kareem shifting over to meet him, floated behind the backboard in midair, then switched hands and laid it in with an underhand scoop. A dumbfounded Magic Johnson stopped in his tracks to watch. He later confessed to thinking, what should we do? Should we take the ball out or ask him to do it again? Collins, who played with Irving for five seasons on the Sixers, said Dr. J had become the premier attraction in the NBA. People are now seeing this, and now people are going out in their backyards, these young kids, I want to be Dr. J. I want to be that guy who plays like that. Among his many admirers was Robert Parrish, who competed against Irving during the great Sixers-Celtics battles in the 80s. Parrish says while Dr. J played for one of Boston's fiercest rivals, it didn't prevent him from silently admiring him from afar. I think it's a combination, Jackie, of the way he played and style of play. He played above the rim. He was a high flyer. Also, the way he carried himself off the court. The dignity, the pride, the grace in which he handled himself. He handled his success, how he handled his brand. A lot of people tried to mirror the doctor on and off the court, even though we didn't have this athletic ability, even though I even tried a few times with a one hand, uh, Doc was flying through the air. I was pretty much walking through the air with a one hand dog. I even just tried to emulate the doctor on some of my breakaway dunks, <laughs> even though I didn't have the lift that the doctor had. <laughs> 
Dr. J had already parlayed his talents into one of the first major shoe endorsements, Converse leather sneakers, while he was playing in the ABA. It was a $20,000 a year deal, and it was a landmark event. His popularity surged after joining the NBA, and in 1979, he starred in the film The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh as Moses Guthrie, a difficult but talented star for a fictional pro team. The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh, an astrological disco sports extravaganza. And may the fish be with you. This was the new definition of an NBA icon a black movie star acting alongside industry greats Stockard Channing and Debbie Allen. In 1983, Dr. J signed with Coca-Cola as a commercial spokesman. But that wasn't Dr. J's only transaction with the soft drink company. He also negotiated to become a Coca-Cola shareholder. And two years after that, he and a New York businessman purchased one of Coke's bottling plants, making it one of the largest black-owned businesses in the nation at the time. That same year, Irving invested in a video game entitled One-on-One, Dr. J versus Larry Bird, published by Electronic Arts, which would later start the popular EA Sports. EA Sports. It's in the game. While the featured players were given $25,000 each and a 2.5% royalty fee, Irving also assisted in the development of the game and received stock in the company. The cover featured a shirtless Dr. J rocking his red sixer shorts and a seated menacing bird wearing a playground tank top. The company sold over a million games in its rollout and several more million as the years went on. How desirable was Dr. J? He even merited a mention in Curtis Blow's iconic basketball song. Basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way to dribble up and down the court. Just like I'm the king on the microphone. So it's Dr. J and Moses Malone. I like slam dunk. In the past, opportunities for black players to earn outside income were scarce because major companies fretted that people of color would not be effective pitchmen. Dr. J, the man who, in essence, single-handedly accounted for the word posterized, proved that notion to be false. A young Michael Jordan, who would later shatter the template of the shoe world with his successful Nike brand, took note. Dr. J was such a classy guy. I knew of his basketball and the creativity that he had, but the business acumen that, that he had was unbelievable. And his advice was, hey, just be who you are, learn while you're basically in school. So you're learning the business of basketball. While Dr. J was building his endorsement portfolio, there was still the matter of continuing to grow his basketball legacy. While Irving advanced to the finals in three of his first six seasons in Philadelphia, an NBA title had eluded him, and the budding rivalry between Larry Bird and Magic Johnson began dominating the NBA's PR machine. Pat Williams believes the Celtics-Lakers hype overshadowed one of the great rivalries in NBA history. Philly and Boston, as you know, have been rivals since the Revolutionary War period. And it goes way back uh, to the Russell uh, Chamberlain era when those two big titans seemingly were on national television every weekend. And basketball fans just got adjusted to seeing those series. Though Dr. J was a decorated champion from the ABA, having won two titles with the Nets, the discerning NBA fans didn't see it. So in their minds, 
It didn't count. The quest for the Sixers to grab that ring became an ordeal of Shakespearean proportions. In 1981, the Sixers held a 3-1 series lead over the Celtics in the Eastern Conference Finals, only to blow it by losing the final three games. It nearly happened again in 1982, when the Sixers staked themselves another 3-1 lead, but the Celtics came back, forcing a Game 7 at the Boston Garden. Well, a miracle happened. As the Sixers really put it on, had a great day, won the game convincingly. And then the famous moment in Boston sports history when those fans started chanting, Beat L.A., Beat L.A. What a warm moment that was in in this intense Philly-Boston rivalry. And suddenly the fans turn it around and say, Go, Philly, go. Go beat L.A. But they couldn't. This time, Dr. J was eliminated at the hands of Kareem and Magic. The Philly fan base was restless and frustrated. And so was the doctor. Help finally arrived in 1983 in the form of Moses Malone, the chairman of the boards, whose physical presence was exactly what the Sixers lacked. He teamed with Dr. J to help the Sixers win 65 games, and both were selected first team All-NBA. Moses, says Irving, set the tone from day one. You know, now it was year seven uh, in Philly, and uh, the fourth time was the charm, but but he was the difference. And in training camp, he just made everybody feel like it's time to go to work. You know, not that we didn't work hard, but uh, when Moses starts sweating, (laughs) <laughs> and doing work, it was a sight to behold. Man, I, this guy's this guy's drenched, and we're we're just doing layups. <laughs> Moses was a mountain of a man, standing six foot ten with two hundred and sixty pounds of muscle, the perfect counterpunch to Kareem. He was so confident his team would win the title, he predicted a postseason sweep, famously proclaiming "fo fo fo." The Sixers nearly pulled it off, going 12-1 in the playoffs, their lone loss to the Milwaukee Bucks. Philly went on to sweep the finals against a Lakers team that featured both Magic and Kareem in their prime. Dr. J provided the finishing touches with the key three-point play in the final minute of Game 4. They asked Julius Irving, would you rather win it at home? And he said no, because that would mean 72 hours more of wondering, and I've wondered long enough. The Sixers' 1983 championship would be the only time a team besides the Lakers or Celtics won from 1980 to 1988. Dr. J settled into his role as the revered elder statesman in his final seasons. The respect he'd garnered from his peers was universal. His flair, his fashion sense, his camaraderie with the other players, it endeared him to most everyone even his most ardent opponents. The best example I can submit is an early November game from 1984, when Bird, in the midst of an MVP season, torched Dr. J for 42 points. He demeaned the Sixers legend with a rash of trash talk that still causes those who were there to flinch. Late in the game, Bird got whistled for an offensive foul, threw an elbow at Dr. J, and suddenly, the two superstars stood 
chest to chest. Dr. J later said he thought Larry was going to throw a punch, so he grabbed him and his arms wound up around Bird's neck, captured in an infamous photo that neither has ever signed. The two men started swinging, and Pat Williams was aghast. Oh, I was, and it was frightening. Uh, see these two uh, titans of the sport, you know, really go after each other. Wow, I was thinking you were sitting there saying, is this really happening? It was, in the most primitive fashion, a passing of the torch in a way that Bird's teammates did not endorse. This is not how fellow members of the Icons Club were supposed to treat each other. This was a breach of respect. And Parrish, who played alongside Bird, didn't appreciate it. And then Larry started saying he was done, he was washed up. Uh, Larry saying he was a better player. And there's only one man that can guard me. There was God, and he was just going, laying it on real thick. I'm surprised that, that the doctor restrained himself for as long as he had, because I knew I would have thrown a punch. And he wasn't even directing it at me. As the melee erupted, Moses Malone, with an assist from Charles Barkley, held Bird as Dr. J got in some free shots, including a punch to Bird's face. Paris said he'd thought about jumping in to assist, but changed his mind. Even though Bird was his teammate, he didn't agree with the denigration of one of the game's greats. Oh, Larry earned that ass whooping, Jackie. He earned it from his words. He earned it, no question about it. And, that, and, and that's one of the reasons why I did not do anything about it, even though Moses was holding Larry back. Because some things, Jackie, you just don't say to another person in the heat of the moment. And I feel like Larry crossed the line. And being that Moses did not throw a punch, that's why I did not intervene. In the years following, Bird and Irving made their peace, as icons often do once the competition is finished and the chance to reflect gives them opportunity to swap stories and compare notes. Dr. J announced he would retire before the 1986-87 campaign and was celebrated in every city, receiving a cane, a fish tie from Bucks coach Don Nelson, a baby kangaroo from the Knicks, and a piece of the parquet from the Celtics. Bird handed it to him and warned, you better check it for termites. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Dr. J didn't wait until he was done playing to make a concerted effort to share his knowledge. He believed a requisite of being part of the exclusive Icons Club was to pay it forward. 
just as Bill Russell came to him and offered sage advice before he went pro, he gladly shared with others the unwritten code of how to handle yourself as the team's top dog. One of the first players he assisted was Sixers rookie Charles Barkley. The number one thing he taught me, he says, you're a star, you're a superstar. Make sure these other guys feel important. Number one, you're gonna get all the blame, which is 100% correct. And he says, you're gonna get really almost all the credit. You're kind of an amateur psychologist. He said, you got to make those guys feel special because number one, you're getting all the credit. Hey, when y'all go to dinner, you grab the check. Every holiday, if a guy's stuck in town, you make sure they come to your house. Dr. J and Moses also provided this tidbit of advice for the round mound of rebound. Lose the cheesy warm-up suits, which were a staple in the college game at the time. They said, we're taking you to shopping. Uh, they took me to board store, and I spent like $25,000. I was like, are y'all crazy? I mean, because I, I ain't never made any money in my life. I'm, I'm, and we shop. They buy me about 10 to 15 suits, and the bill was like $25,000. When I got the bill, I was like, man, y'all are crazy. And I remember calling my agent and my mom and grandma. I said, I spent $25,000 today, y'all. And my grandmother says, I never made that much money in my life. And it, it was so funny, but like, they were right. This is professional basketball. You can't walk around and sweat. Irving's willingness to share his expertise soon made him the go-to for ambitious young players. When Magic Johnson considered whether to leave Michigan State early and go pro in 1979, he talked it over with Dr. J first. When Jordan wanted a blueprint for his business pursuits, he studied how Irving profited off the court. Dr. J was one of the guys that I'd idolized from the business side of things, and I wanted to take that same passage you know, and show that I was more than just a basketball player. I had a personality. I had a business mindset. I can coordinate and I can cross all different types of color barriers. When Kobe decided to reach out to the all-time greats to siphon their knowledge, Dr. J was atop his list. Shaquille O'Neal grew up wanting to be just like Dr. J. He loved his style, his marketing power, and the fluidity of his game. One morning in 1991, when Shaq was a rising star at LSU, he decided to sleep in. So one day I'm in, you know, my, my sophomore year, and I missed class on purpose because I'm like, I'm an All-American. If anything happened, I'll just go pro. I don't want to, you know, I'm starting to get arrogant. He was snoring blissfully when suddenly he heard the door click open. And I wake up and I see this big-ass hand on my chest. <laughs> and it's really Dr. J, and I'm like, I actually thought I was dead for real. Seriously, I, I, I thought I was I was dead. I was that tired. And then when I came through, he said, Coach Brown said, meet him on the track right now. And I was like, oh, shit, I missed class. Shaq followed his idol to the track, where an agitated Dale Brown was waiting. He instructed his young center to sprint two laps. After Shaq rested for about a minute, Brown barked, run again, as Dr. J did his best to suppress a smile. So I would run two laps, sprint. <laughs> Dr. J, Coach Brown, go again. Two laps. Go again. Coach Brown, I'm going to run you till you throw. 
But in my mind, I'm like, Dr. J is out there. This is when I was young and had no body fat, and I used to just fly around the track. Afterward, Dr. J sat down with the young Shaq and urged him to remain humble, go to class, and make sound financial decisions. Irvin gave the big man his number, and a wonderful relationship was hatched. In later years, when he moved to Orlando near Shaq's parents, the two would gossip about the NBA and the latest fashion trends. In July of 1996, Shaq was a free agent. Lakers GM Jerry West was relentlessly pursuing him. Shaq was torn. He loved the idea of moving to L.A. and playing with such a storied franchise. But he felt a tug of loyalty towards the Magic, which had drafted him number one. He dialed up his mentor, Dr. J. I was like, Doc, I need your advice. And he said, brother, do what's best for you. And, you know, he was the last guy that I talked to before I made the decision about leaving Orlando. Dr. J's influence continues to span numerous generations. Allen Iverson was a complicated star. He ushered in his own brand of individualism with his hip-hop vibe, cornrows, and baggy pants, and became a cultural icon in the process. He also became one of the most beloved Sixers of all time, alongside Dr. J, who, when Iverson's career took some circuitous turns, became his sounding board. Here's Iverson talking to Michael Rappaport of Fox Sports in 2017. And Doc has been always... He's always been supportive of me. He's always been there for me um, for whatever, even if it's just a conversation about something that I might be going through personally off the basketball court. Mm -hmm. He's been there. When Jason Kidd retired in 2013 and contemplated a post-basketball life, he called the doctor for guidance on how he could replicate Irving's success with his bottling company. Dwayne Wade, born and raised in Chicago, grew up idolizing, naturally, Jordan. Buddy tells me when he got into the league and signed with Converse, it was Julius Irving who became his muse. The doctor also helped him understand how to adjust his own game when, in 2010, LeBron James and Chris Bosh famously joined him on the Miami Heat. I took a lot from Dr. J in my career from the standpoint of a star player in the midst of his prime to be able to sacrifice to win a championship. And I respect that so much. And so I kind of like model a lot of myself. I don't know if people know that. I'm glad you asked that. Like even his fashion. Like I looked at his fashion was like, yo, Dr. J was a bad dude. Julius Irving has been retired 35 years. Yet his legacy has staying power because, aside from those 18,364 career points and his undeniable basketball panache, he has proven to be a redoubtable mentor for a litany of players, past and present. Nobody was cooler than Dr. J, with his knee-high socks, his ABA afro, and his elegant basketball moves. But it's his generosity of spirit and his willingness to help to continue to lay the groundwork for an NBA that supports players as athletes, social justice advocates, and forward-thinking businessmen that makes him such a critical link in the evolution of the basketball icon. Here's how Bill Walton knows that's true. The way you can tell that the, you know, the Dr. J is the single most beloved, respected, and admired player is that when we go to the Hall of Fame every year, Dr. J, he gets the most presentations by far. Dr. J says very few of his peers acknowledged his greatness while he was in the thick of his career. It was one of those old school unwritten rules. It wasn't until he was long retired that his friend and former ABA teammate Al Skinner told him, 
you were playing a different game than everybody else. It startled Irving because no other player had actually verbalized that to him. And he understood why. You never showed weakness in front of a competitor. You know, you don't want to give him an edge. You don't want to give him an edge. You know, you, know, you never say, man, that guy's so good, he's just going to kill me tonight. <laughs> you know, no. Although Dr. J was caught in the crosshairs of the Magic versus Larry phenomenon, he managed to beat them both during his illustrious climb to the top. And, as both Magic and Larry will tell you, they learned a thing or two from the doctor as they began their own ascent. That's next on the Icons Club. This is the Icons Club, the evolution of the NBA superstar. I wrote and reported this podcast. Story editing by Justin Varia. The show was executive produced by Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Juliet Littman. Our producers are Bobby Wagner, Noah Malale, Jonathan Kerma, Isaac Lee, Justin Barrier, and Vikram Patel. Sound design and engineering by Scott Somerville. The theme music was composed by Devin Ronaldo. The rest of the music in this series is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Copy editing by Jack McCluskey and fact-checking by Kellen B. Coates. Art direction and illustration by David Shoemaker. Thanks for listening. <laughs>